for joining us today on Geezers of Gear. Today's episode is brought to you by Act Lighting, North America's leading distributor of entertainment technology products. With top brands that include MA Lighting, Ayrton, Chainmaster, Robert Juliet, and custom cable assemblies and solutions from Rapco Horizon, Proco, and Roadhog. ACT is dedicated to supporting leading artists, designers, technicians, and suppliers in this industry by identifying cutting-edge, disruptive technologies that inspire creative vision and advance the boundaries of live events and installations. ACT has 600 employees who are each dedicated to providing exemplary service and support and ensuring the show goes on by maintaining inventory and 24-7 technical expertise in nine locations throughout the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Visit actlighting.com today for more information. Episode 22, here we are. Oh, my word. Yes, sir. We're getting up there. We're old. I'm telling you. Even geezers has become geezer, Lee. (laughs) That's for sure. Geezers is old. So, uh, you know, another week of... uh, of really great response to the podcast. Lots and lots of downloads. It's growing every day. I guess people really dug the the Mike Lowe interview last week from Britannia Row. And um, so that's cool. And what else did I want to mention? I wanted to talk about Infocom a little bit. Um, we do need to mention Infocom because they have been very gracious and supportive of our podcast in, sure giving, in giving us a meeting room to use to record our podcast at the show. So we've mentioned it a few times, but we will be recording live. Well, not live. So we will be recording, but on site at Infocom. And we've booked a few guests so far. Um, We are doing two podcasts a day. We're recording at nine and 10 o'clock in the morning each day. And that may get uh, shuffled around a little bit to meet people's schedules. But um so, yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. I, I think uh, the idea for sure between Henry and I was to kind of just really get fresh response from people at the show on what they think of the show or um, new product releases that are huge or that are being really well received uh, on their booths. So it's not really, you know, an advertising or promotion of of particular you know companies or whatever but really just to talk about the gear that's that's there and things that are exciting and big announcements or whatever so i think it'll be fun yeah i think it will be too you know so i don't think we'll have famous people on i think we'll have infamous people on so it'll be cool you know getting some guests on i know i've reached out to a number of people and i'm trying to finalize some of those podcasts too and um yeah, there should be a good, interesting mix of people at this show for sure. Yeah, I think so. It's going to so, be good. So getting on to kind of industry news and uh, one of my passions, and it's kind of funny, and this, this goes back to the high-end days, when high-end did the the EC1 and the ES1 exterior building fixtures, I kind of developed a passion for, you know, lighting architecture on the, um, on the outside of buildings. So, you know, I've you know, help design. We, I think, uh, I helped design a rave once where they lit the Sphinx with like 36 cyber lights. I did the spec on that. And then, you know, later in years, I helped light up the city of Memphis for a big special event that they did. So I always, every time kind of industry news pops up, I'm always like, Hey, wow, this is cool. They did an art, you know, an exterior thing. So I hope I get this pronunciation, right? Marcel, you're probably going to have to help me with this one. Um, 
Clay Packy relit the Mole Antonellia Anna, Antonellia Anna, which is a big, big church in uh, Turin, Italy. I thought it sounded a little bit like what I ordered for dinner last night. Exactly. The Mole, you know, it was a Mexican restaurant, though, not Italian. So you should have added the word chicken onto the end of that, right? Yeah. But um, this is one of those huge, you know, built in the mid-1800s Gothic structures that, you know, they did a really great job of lighting. So they they lit it, obviously, all with LED lighting. And I'm kind of looking at some of the pictures online. And, uh, you know, pretty amazing how this very ornate arch- you know, architecture is lit. One thing is lit, lighting a flat surface, right? But the other thing is really spending time to light all of the, you know, cutouts, tunnels, portages, whatever that is. So some pretty darn Im- impressive uh, stuff going on there, you know? Pretty yeah, neat. And, and it's funny because, you know, one thing I know is that churches are real big over here for lighting and sound and production. <laughs> but in Europe, it's almost like taboo to light those structures, you know? They maybe get white light, but you you don't often see them with color. So it's really cool to see when something like that happens. It's like... Hey, look, you know, Europe, even though the building's hundreds of years old, it doesn't necessarily mean that you, you can't pull it into the modern day by, by putting some really cool light on it. Yeah. So we put in the United States, we put sound and lighting on the inside and they put it on the outside. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) True that. So there you go. So a little bit of product news here. Um, you know, obviously people are starting to release a few products here and there for Infocom coming up. Uh, Alation uh, more recently did the Proteus Smarty Hybrid. I guess say that 10 times fast, right? But, um, you know, this is another one of these fixtures now that comes out of the box that's IP rated. So, you know, it's got an IP65 rating. It can get rained on, sprinkled on, set out in the rain, all that kind of stuff. And it's, uh, you know, it's good to go. So more and more, I guess, as you know, as lighting companies struggle for market share, it's kind of interesting now that this angle is, is that, hey, you know, your uh, your lighting fixtures can get peed on and they're going to be okay. And um, I'm looking at kind of like the rain cover base on this thing. It's got an odd top box or a bottom box base on it that kind of is like a rain shield. So it looks pretty, pretty cool. But another thing that, uh, you know, we'll be seeing at Infocom here for sure. Um, cool. You know, all... Also on the on the wireless side of things and, uh, you know, people that do wireless DMX and wireless uh, remote device management, they're making some inroads there, too. So I read an interesting article about what uh, City Theatrical is just currently released. And it's a it's called a multiverse wireless DMX RDM system. So. Not so much the product that I'm interested in, but uh, the what they talk about in terms of radio emissions. So apparently DMX, you got to have a honking ass signal to get this out to your uh, to get this out to your receivers. You know when you transmit, and you know all of the issues that that kind of ensue with that. You know to have not not to have data packets dropping and all this other stuff to have real show integrity. And so City Theatrical came up with this device where they were able to reduce. 90% of the RF emissions or the the power of those RF emissions and still maintain the same data integrity. And it, so it works on a couple of different frequencies, 900 or 2.4 gig, and you're able to shove a lot of DMX data down the pipe. And apparently it, 
it holds its own. So that's kind of interesting. It's a little geeky for me, right? Because I always like the stuff that lights up or makes big it's, noise. It's or probably explodes. some kind of weird like conversion or compression or something where they're converting it to something much, much, you know, lower bandwidth and sending that wirelessly and then unpacking it on the other end or something. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I don't know. It's it it's I'm not sure of the actual technology itself. I I can tell you in looking at the pictures of the receivers this morning, they're no longer one and two antenna, right? So this looks like your super duper uh, wireless router in your house right now that's got four antennas shoved out of it. So I know certainly um, with the newer Wi-Fi routers, your speed of wireless signal picks up dramatically when you put multiple antennas back on it. But I'm sure right. there's some kind of a a codec or, you know, something like that, that, you know, does that, um, you know, last on the, on the product side, it's just kind of interesting, but, um, there's a company out of Spain and, uh, they, they manufacture a product called the light shark, which is, it's a, they're a small console manufacturer out of Spain. I did stop and see them, uh, last year at Infocom. It was kind of cool. They had a console that you slid an iPad on as the monitor on that console. The software is loaded onto it. So it was kind it's kind of like a, keyboard widget sort of looks like a grand ma2 maybe a little shorter in size and you slam two ipads down into it and it becomes your entire operating system and that's gained a little bit of ground and they they're popping up every now and then in industry news but they're going to launch a uh what's it called the company uh this this one uh it's called an ls wing so i think what's the company called work pro oh okay you never mentioned the company name you said a company in spain yeah Uh, sorry Work Pro or Word Pro? Work, work Pro. Work Pro. Hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. I'll pop by that and see them again. But uh, they have a new wing coming out at Infocom. So it looks pretty cool. Uh, you can do 4,098 channels out of it. And it, they just have an interesting angle on things because things more revolved around iPads and iPhones and things like that rather than having, you know, a computer you know, attached to things. So yeah. that's that, that's kind of cool. Having having owned iPads for a long time, I'm not positive I'd want I'd want to rely on it to run a show though. Uh, they're pretty they're pretty bulletproof stable. Yeah. But here's one here's where one where I'm going to tease you. While you get all the new iPhones and stuff first, as soon as they come out, remember I was the first one in the company to get the iPad, right? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so there you Don't go. Don't go there, Henry. <laughs> you're you're stepping into very dangerous territory. So, yeah, anyway, um, now the iPads are kind of interesting what you're able to do these days with them. So, yeah, and I'm sure more and more, you know, there's more control software, more, you know, Bluetooth controlled lights, things like that. So this is a platform that continues to evolve. Yeah, it's funny. uh, So I um, on the geezers of gear, I think it was either Instagram or Facebook. I can't remember, but posted a picture of my little uh, podcast studio set up here. And, um, somebody commented asking, is the iPad used as the recording device? So are you recording the podcast into the iPad? And, um, I just use the iPad for show notes so that I can Mm -hmm. review things while we're actually talking. But, um, you know, you certainly can now, like there's a bunch of different software programs out there. Podcasting is obviously becoming huge. I just read an article this morning that said there's currently over 700,000 free podcasts available. Uh, so I guess we're very appreciative that you're sitting here listening to this right now. If you had 700 or 699,999 other podcasts that you could have listened to instead, um, but that more and more Americans and people all over the world are, are, 
downloading and listening to podcasts as a as a medium uh, every day. I mean, it's growing by the day, and now the the big guys out there are starting to invest into software and recording devices and recording software and apps and all those things that are related or that support podcasting. But I've mentioned it on previous shows. We use good old Skype, and we use a Skype recording tool called Ecam. And, um, and then that all gets put into GarageBand, which comes native with a Mac for free. So it's free software. So we're not supporting that big industry of investors who are coming into podcasting, I guess. But, um, you know, I just found that this was a really great way to put it together. It's very flexible. It comes out sounding really great. It's easy to work with and edit and, uh, do all the post-production stuff and add your music and do whatever you want. So, I have looked at podcasting tools. There's certainly easier ways and and probably, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, just more compact methods of doing this. But to me, this is the most professional uh, way that we can report a, a podcast or record a podcast, sorry. Um, and on the topic of podcasting, I'm starting to get approached more often by musician friends and, you know, some being relatively famous, some not so famous, but people that I've known my whole life practically who want to come on our podcast and either promote something that they're doing, talk about music, whatever. And I'd love to do that all day, but we do have to remember the roots of our podcast is, is gear and our industry, the production industry. So as tempting as it is to sit and talk to musicians all day, it's not something I think we can get away with doing. Um, I, you know, we want to remain kind of true and loyal to our core audience. And so that's what we're going to do. But I did listen, and it's based out of my hometown, Calgary, Canada. I listened to a podcast yesterday. It's actually a, a YouTube channel called Beer, Rum, and Rock and Roll. And it was a friend of mine named Reed Shimazawa, a very, very talented guitar player who was being interviewed on this beer, rum, and rock and roll. And these guys actually open a beer and pour a rum and Coke. And, you know, they, they set up their cocktails before they even start talking. And, you know, they cheers and off they go talking. And it really was cool because they were talking about stuff that happened 30 years ago plus and how they got into music, very similar to our format, you know, how did you get started, that kind of thing. And certainly when you're talking about rock and roll, you get more people who got into it just for the girls or, you know, the party or the fun or whatever, um, and not as much for the art of it all. And then that came later usually, but uh, really fun thing to sit and watch or listen mm -hmm. to. And, um, you know, it just reminds me that this medium is not only... Uh, fresh and new and exciting, but I think that it's growing very rapidly and it's here to stay. And uh, I thank everyone for supporting us and please continue to support podcasting in general. It's, it's primarily a free medium where you can come and listen to these shows without paying anything. Um, and thankfully, we have sponsors who are stepping up and helping us pay the, the cost of getting this thing out there. Uh, it's not anything that we're doing for profit. Uh, today, but um, it is helping to cover the costs, and that's very much appreciated. So, there's my rant for the day. There you go. Well, now, podcasting is just an interesting thing. Um, I think as this medium continues to evolve, you know, everybody sees, you know, CNN's ratings being in the toilet and all of the major news networks, their ratings are down, 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 down. As other alternative, you know, podcasts, and then of course the video podcasts that come out, you know, 
you if you have a genre or a topic that you're interested in, you can just go in and get that chunk of information for the day. It's updated relatively frequently, right? Yeah. And then, uh, you know, there you are and you're driving down the road. So you don't have to sift through the wreckage of a bunch of, you know, pharmaceutical commercials or topics that you don't want to listen to. You can just go get the information and get going on the day, which is, I guess, right. a trend more and more. Get the well, information, also, get out. Yeah, it's also like real micro-focused. You know, if mm-hmm. if you're into... Uh, you know, basket weaving, there's probably 20 podcasts out there about basket weaving that talk about your interest. And so it's kind of why I went into that little rant about musicians and music. You know, it really, for me, it's sort of the core of it all for me. The beginning of everything was, you know, me loving music as a fan and then eventually becoming a musician. And then from there getting into the music business. And um, so that was sort of the evolution. So anytime I can go back to the roots, to the beginning where I'm either a fan and, you know, a big part of interviewing Doc McGee was as a fan, um, but also going back to when I was a musician and listening to other musicians talk about those times and going through that mode and, uh, you know, just really, really cool. But I, I, again, I don't think it's something that we're going to expand into or, or break off into. We're going to talk about gear and we're going to talk about the production industry and the people in it. And, um, you know, occasionally if a musician pops in, we're still going to try and talk about gear, but we'll talk about gear with a musician. So it'll just have that different spin on it. Absolutely. So today we have a rather uh, colorful and interesting character coming on our podcast, right? We have Greg Brunklick of Clearwing Productions. He's the owner of Clearwing. Um, Marcel, you and I have both known this guy for quite a long time, right? Yeah, but again, it's another guy that, although I've done business with Clearwing for a long time, I've never had a real personal relationship with Greg. And so, you know, every time we do the podcast for the couple of days before it, I'll spend some time researching and... um, this week, I posted a picture somewhere on social media of me with my feet up on the coffee table watching the French Open. I think it was Sunday morning at about 7 o'clock in the morning. And I had Greg up on my screen, and I was researching Greg to try and figure out some of the things that we wanted to talk about with him. And um, so, yeah, I mean, just another really great guy, you know, with the same sort of geezer mentality that a lot of the pe- people we've been uh, we've been talking with recently where basically you come in, you roll up your sleeves, you get stuff done, and as it needs to grow, you keep growing it. And I just love, you know, the attitude behind it, some of the things that he said. Um, You know, yesterday there was a quote that I put up on Facebook that said um, something like, you know, in order to teach it, you have to do it first, or, or, you know, uh, like teach your people by showing them, by doing it. And I love that mentality. I've always had the same basic approach. You know, if, if I'm not willing to sweep the floors, I don't think I should ask someone else to do it. And uh, that's always been me. So Be, be the doer, right? Yeah, the, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, so it'll be interesting getting, you know, Greg's perspective on growing the business. He started off very humble beginnings, you know. And uh, through hard work and commitment and great customer service, he grew quite a nice business. So well, I'll tell you one thing. I, as I was doing this research, um, I know that in the notes that we got prior somewhere, it said that he had 60 employees or something, but I went on his website and I actually counted like 160. 
So that company has really grown and I had no idea. Like if you would have asked me how many people are in Clearwing, I probably would have said 20 or 25. I didn't know it was 160 people. So, you know, uh, awesome. I mean, again, I love, you know, I'm clapping right now. I, I love when somebody comes in and starts a company with one person and grows it to 160 or 500 or whatever. And, um, you know, just like Act Lighting, who's our sponsor today. I remember when I first read in in their um, promo that they gave me that they have over 600 employees. I was shocked. I almost fell over. You know, I had no idea. I would have guessed 70, you know. So I need to pay closer attention to the size of companies around me, I guess. So before we start, it's just amazing for me as a personal experience. So since I still get out and visit some of the production companies, I remember... Ooh, several years ago, I went up on a business trip to Clearwing to take Greg out to lunch. This is probably going back now three or four years. Um, but, you know, it's amazed you, how you build a mental image of a company that you've done business with online and you talk to people and you walk into their facilities and you see their facilities and you're like, holy crap, this is utterly amazing. And yeah. one thing about one, one thing about his shops is they're spotless. You can eat off of the floor, yeah, which that. is a which is a, uh, a pretty common theme with the most successful production companies yeah. around. They're just, you know, literally you could eat a steak off of their floor. It is well, clean in their shops. It you says know? a lot about what your gear is going to be like when you get it or what the show is going to be. You know, when, when yeah. people take that much care to clean their bathroom or the floor in their shop or whatever, you know that their gear is going to be in top quality. You know that the show is going to come off without a hitch and, you know, I mean, that just, I think it says everything you need to know about a company. So let's go ahead and get Greg on and um, and see what he's got to say. Greg, it's Henry and Marcel. Hey, guys. Officially How known as do? the geezers of gear. How is this on speakerphone? Is this okay? It's a better than average speakerphone. It's but... not too darn bad. And I'll tell you, we were actually just talking about this off the record um, that audio guys tend to sound the worst on our podcast. No, really? <laughs> That's because they, somebody probably inserts a stereo defecator in line and uh, yeah, it sounds like... Something like that. I'm not <laughs> sure what it is, but audio guys tend to sound the worst on our podcast for some strange reason. Lighting guys just, you know, they don't mess with it. They put in a, a set of headphones or whatever and away they go, but... You know, it is what oh. it is. It's kind of a mixed bag. We get some people who kind of hold the phone on their shoulder and you can hear them every once in a while and other people who sit very clearly in front of a microphone and, you know, pronounce every word perfectly and they've never been interviewed before, I guess. So it's uh, it's all well, good. Well, I'll, I'll test with what I got. How's that? There you go. There you go. Yeah. So I just got, huh? I got to know, Greg, Stereo Defecator. Hopefully you didn't trademark that because I'm going to totally steal it. <laughs> No, no I, yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, that's that's one of the knobs on my KTEL Star processor, stereo defecation. There you go. <laughs> Everyone needs one. Everyone <laughs> needs one. Yep. Go so ahead. I uh, I had the fortunate pleasure of actually doing some research on you because although we've done, as I was just saying a moment ago, we've done business together, but I've never actually really gotten to know you as as a person and. Uh, and so, you know, like most of our guests, you're actually a pretty interesting guy, which uh, is going to make this a whole lot easier. 
Okay, well, I, I don't know about that. Maybe my reputation precedes me on Google or something. I, I'm kind of worried about what that actually means. But, yeah. um, you know, I've been around. I've seen a few things. I've done a few things. And somehow that all adds up to interesting, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I guess to get, get things started, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into the business, what uh, uh, maybe what you did before you got started into okay. this business, which was probably in your childhood, so it may not matter. But, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, not many people say, well, you know, I was a lawyer and then suddenly I decided to start a lighting company or a sound company. Um, yeah. Usually it's, it's uh, you know, my buddies in school were in a band and uh, and they needed a lighting guy. So here I am. Well, it, you know, it's more of that than the prior, for sure. I mean, uh, in high school, I started out as a jock and all of that. And then I'd, I've always been kind of a chameleon you know, in the business, if you will, meaning, you know, I met some guys that had a band. It's just like what you just said. Uh, and I was a drummer, actually. I started in marching band and all that, and I, I was a jock on the side. But um, as a drummer, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And I met some guys that had a band, and but there were two brothers in the band. One played guitar and one played drums. Oh so there wasn't a spot for a drummer. So I, my mother had always been a piano teacher, organ player, so I knew a little bit about keyboards. I didn't read music, but um, I started playing keyboards in that band, um, and the band went on for a few years in high school. We did the dances at school and all that stuff. And I finally found that I really liked being a musician better than being a jock because I think the odds were better with the girls, you know, on a football <laughs> team, there's 50 guys and on band, there's five, yeah. you know, so. <laughs> well, I, uh, but as I, a drummer, I, I you really... usually get the very last pick, you know that, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. 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 So, so I maybe as a keyboard player, harder. you did better. I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's because of, uh, the drummers are so sweaty afterwards. You know? Maybe I don't that's know. it. Anyway, Maybe that's it. Um, For me, so it was anyway, always think, just that they were dumb. Yeah, well, there's that too. <laughs> they weren't yeah, very we bright, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, what's it take to count to four, you know, at exactly, the time? Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but, um, so I, I played keyboards for a few years, never read music or anything, so I wasn't going too far with that. But, you know, there were a couple iterations of bands in that time until I... I got out of high school and then one of the bands I was in reformed again and they wanted to go pedal steel guitar and, and the pedal steel guitar player actually played through a Leslie so it was pretty much like a keyboard so I then just evolved to doing the sound and you know I, I also along the line my dad was a very adept carpenter so I picked up some carpentry chops just you know osmosis organically as a kid so I started building road cases and whatnot for amplifiers and, and stuff as that band, you know, got some notoriety in the, in the region. And so I was a sound guy, road case builder, if you will. And that's what kind of started out my evolution to where we are today. Wow. And so you, know you, what's, you know what's you funny about that story, though, is that, you know, there's so many people who have come on this podcast already. We're on episode 22 now. 22. And I'd say mm -hmm. there's probably half of those 10 people who, who came on and said the exact same thing. I, you know, I was in school yep. and, and some friends of mine started a band and I can think of a couple relatively famous examples besides yours. Um, and I, I may be off on these, but I, I'm about 95% sure that uh, I have the real version, but, uh, Jim Lenahan started out with some school buddies 
uh, in a band in Gainesville, and he was mm-hmm. the singer. And uh, the guitar player was writing all the songs and got to a point where he said, hey, you know, why don't you step aside so I can sing some of these? And um, by the way, we need a lighting guy. Maybe you can do that instead. And he went, oh, okay. And that was Jim Lenahan and Tom Petty. And so, you know, Tom Petty was originally not the singer in that band. And and then the other one that I can think of uh, is... Um, Robert Carone from Upstaging went to school yep. with the guys from Cheap Trick and mm-hmm. as they started to play larger parties or whatever they needed lights and he went out and bought some park hands and then he bought some more and he just kept expanding as they did and that's kind of what started Upstaging so yeah. it's yeah. it's a pretty common common situation I mean I guess not as much now now that there's thousands of lighting companies out there i don't think someone's going to go to their buddy at school and say hey can you start a lighting company um, yeah i think it was much tougher to start at the bottom now i mean i at the time you know the carpentry part at least i i started that in my dad's basement yeah. you know so we just did that for the longest time out of the, the basement until i made a couple i made a grand piano case one time actually it wasn't might have been a hammond b3 case before the grand piano and i discovered after i <laughs> Broke the case that I couldn't get it up the basement <laughs> steps, so I had to take it back, take it back apart again, and oh rebuild it in the God. garage. That would be so, so frustrating. Start, <laughs> so then I started building the cases in the garage until we kind of ramped up to building our first reasonably big PA, which was several years later down the road. But you know, that's when I took out that first loan and all of that. But we can get into that further in the. Oh. In what, the talk, but yeah, it's been a long road. What inspired the the first uh, PA that you said you built? So, like, did you just go out and look at JBLW bins and go, "I could build those," or did you have? Well, an actual... you know, I I had we had um, that the very first version of Clearwing Productions was it, it evolved from the, you know the band that reformed that I was in, where I was no longer the keyboard player. And having a relationship with a guy in another band that just broke up, and he happened to own the PA system in that band. Yeah. He was a guitar player, but so he wasn't going to go back to being a guitar player either. So we took the the basic little tiny PA that he had at the time, which I think was like a couple of eliminator EV eliminator folded oh horn bottoms. Wow. And, and a couple of horns with a, a phase linear 400 power amp and uh, started just doing stuff for local bands and little festivals. And there used to be a thing down on the lakefront here called Radio City Music, which was an outdoor concert series on the lake on Sundays. And we started doing those things and, you know, just needed, and we started out with two folded horns and then we needed four, you know, so we copied and knocked off a couple more. But the real, real concert PA, the first one we built, was um, there used to be a company that did um, uh, movie theater installs here in Milwaukee. They were called MTS Royal Systems, an offshoot of a company in Minneapolis. And MTS Royal was the local JBL uh, dealer or distributor at the time. And they got together with an infant designer at JBL named Mark Gander, who's now like a VP of something, you know, big. And we designed a cabinet, which was basically an S4 
only it was two 18s, two 12s, a two inch compression driver and two bullets in one box. So instead of the four uh, 12s or whatever, or four, mm-hmm. the two 15s and the right. four 10s that yeah. were in four, we had our own version of that, but we didn't even know about an S4 at the time. So it was just kind of coincidental that it was a one box system that we used. And we built that actually for an Eddie Rabbit um, Kenny Rogers co-headline tour in the very late, it might've been 71 or 72, something like that. So that was when I took out the note, uh, with my dad at the bank to build that system, which was 16 boxes of those. Um, so when you say you designed this, you know, similar to an S4, but without ever having known about or looked at an S4, who was engineering the design of these boxes? Like, were you just going, were you just putting speakers wherever they fit or were you looking at things like, you know, dispersion and, you know, all the different things that you needed to consider? Yep. All of that, all of that came from smarter cats than us. Um, you know, Mark Gander for one, who was the JBL guy who had been contacted by Dave Lund at MTS Royal Systems. Both of those guys were more the engineering types and, and we were really just the carpentry end. So once we had the design from them, we did the physical construction of the boxes, but they were more, you know, what size the port needed to be and all of that. Right. So, um, it's yeah, funny I how you don't really see have... these days you don't see people copying like uh, line array systems and stuff, right? It's gotten a little more yeah, complicated. Right. So Right, right. Yeah. So Gander may certainly have had a uh, a knowledge of the S4 at the time, but it was my scope, you know, was not far beyond the regional market at that point. Uh, we just happened to bump into Eddie Rabbit when he came through town one time just as he was hitting it hot and uh, I mixed monitors for him that night. And he just said, hey, you know, this is great. We got a show in Norman, Oklahoma in three days. Can you guys be there? And we said, sure. We threw everything in a truck and went to Norman, Oklahoma, and then proceeded to do the next five years with Eddie Rabbit. So, um, you know, and in that period is when we built the the box that I'm referring to, which was called an LRC, which uh, was the acronym for Lansing Royal Clearwing. JBL Lansing, MTS Royal Systems and Clearwing. So that was the collaboration designed that box yeah now the, the funny thing is is the last of those boxes that we sold off i should have at least kept one i never did but we sold the last we sold the first eight boxes off to the, the professional bull riders at one point years ago but the last eight boxes we sold to the naval base at guantanamo bay cuba so um they used to do shows down there for the the guys that were stationed there and that's where the last eight lrcs live i i kind of expect one of these days to see you know, some guys paddling across the channel, one in sitting in each 18 hole like a kayak. You know, just <laughs> Greg, that's funny. That's funny that you should mention that, Greg, because literally I did some work down in Guantanamo Bay and yeah. I walked into a warehouse where those boxes were sitting and I'm like, what are those okay. boxes? I've never seen yeah. them before. That okay. was kind of funny. They were out in a warehouse. Yep. So. Well, and so then you've seen the LRC because that's where the last eight of them live. Yep. <laughs> that's hysterical. Small world, isn't yeah. it, when you think about it? At, at what point did you actually name Clearwing? And and you know we've certainly heard the story of where the where the name came from, and and maybe we can talk about that for two seconds. But was yeah. it, it? I I assume the company had been already named prior to going out with Eddie Rabbit. 
Well, yeah, yeah, for sure. It was uh, it was more when the previous partner that I had and I were hobbyists doing things just around town, you know. And you mentioned Cheap Trick a minute ago, but Cheap Trick, of course, is from Rockford, so we saw them here in Milwaukee a lot on their climb to the top. Mm. Um, and uh, so we were doing smaller stuff in clubs, and you know, Humpin' Hannah's was a club in Milwaukee that Cheap Trick used to come to all the time. So we, we were doing a lot of stuff on that scale, and I we were just riding down the road in a truck one day and trying to think of a name for our company. And the you know my partner at the time said, "Well, what do you think of Clearwind?" And I said, "Well, yeah, that's fine. You know, I don't care." Yeah. <laughs> kind of kept on going with it, and um, I've thought many times of changing it to something that I don't know maybe has some actual thought behind it, but um, it just kind of stuck and. You know, people go clear, clear water, clear this, clear that, and you know. But once you have it, you have it, and it's it's kind of stuck. So, so how did he come up with it? I have no idea, but I can tell you that at the time we we had a lot of laughs about it. We went, oh yeah, someday we'll have our own plane with Lexan wings, and you know, blah blah blah. blah. <laughs> so <laughs> and where's that, that part? Before, yeah, I don't know. And before that, that was even before, you know, there was such a thing as clear wings because the, the PAs were flying, you know, right. everything was ground back back in those days. So oddly enough, it, it kind of ended up having a, a funny kind of circle back, but right. there was no rhyme or reason to it at all in the very beginning. So, so Greg, you mentioned, I, I want... you mentioned your dad uh, loaning you the yep. money for your, your first uh, rig that you built. Do you remember what that yep. amount was? I'm sure you do. $72,000. Wow. Yep. <laughs> so that's, what I, that's, what, that's exactly what I was going to ask next. Were you just absolutely yeah. crapping your pants as they were, as you were signing the loan? Because I mean, this is what mid seventies at this point, right? That's a lot of stroke, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Seven, I would say 72 or 73, maybe, you know, there's wow. some of those years, are, some of those years are a little blurry back there, but, yeah. um, yeah, so we, I mean that was just to buy raw Baltic birch plywood and JBL cones and wire and power distribution and a, you know, I think maybe a couple dozen AB amplifiers at the time. Uh, wow. So yeah, I mean the, if if you start back with the clear the very first Clearwing PA, it was um, some JBL. It was, the very first one was the EV folded horns with a phase linear 400 power amplifiers. Then we graduated up to some JBL 4550s and 4560s and did a club called the Palms in Milwaukee for many, many years with that rig. And that was uh, two 4550s, two 4560s, a couple of community horns and a JBL horn on a lens oh, yeah. per side. And that, that whole rig was powered by five BGW 750s. So, you know, yeah. I think I toured with that exact same sound system in Canada uh, as a musician in, yeah. you know, probably, I don't know, mid to late 70s. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, when you think rig. about the kind of power, if you think about the kind of power we're putting out there nowadays, five BGW 750s yeah. isn't, you know, it's a pair of wedges nowadays. Yeah. So, yeah, pretty funny. I heard I heard a rig like that play probably four or five years ago, right? After the advent of line arrays. And you actually, I went back and I, I stood in front of that rig and it mm -hmm. sounded pretty good. Large boxes, you know, big boxes, big sound. And yep. I have to tell you That's that those, those designs were years ahead, obviously, of their time. But the rig oh, yeah. sounded damn good by today's standards, you know? It was oh, really yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, and obviously my favorite. 
my favorite for many, many years was the Martin split bin, you know, with Philoshape, the first Supertramp PA, yeah. and that Martin split bin was just crushed low they frequency. They sounded amazing. Time. Yeah, I mean, I remember yeah. the first time I heard that Martin, the the Philoshave setup. Uh, we actually talked about it last week with Mike from Brit- Britannia Row. Um, but that was like the first real breakthrough when you got out of the JBLW bins and the 4560s yep. and stuff. That was a real breakthrough, uh, you know, techn- technological jump. And I yep. just remember the first time I heard kick drums through like eight of those uh, bottoms, yeah. eight of the bottoms and two mids aside. And, you know, the, a kick drum just sounded completely different than I'd ever heard before. Yeah. And I was hooked right then. So it really matched up well to the sort of glam 80s music that I was kind of into at the time. And I think those moments in time where you just go, oh, my God, that sounds so good. Those, that, that's the emotion that's kept us all in this business sure for all of these years. Those, those moments were just, I remember the first time I heard of Vidas, Greg. Yeah. You know, the, it was just like life-changing moment in what, what the industry was going to go towards for the future. So yeah. cool stuff. Yeah. So um, Eddie Rabbit, you did five years. And then I think at some point you got into some heavier stuff with like uh, Def Leppard or something, didn't you? Yeah. Well, yeah, after the, after it was kind of actually overlapped a little bit because I was doing Eddie Rabbit at the end when my partner started going off with Blackfoot and uh, we met them. I don't even remember exactly how we met Blackfoot. I think it was through the Al Nally management, which, which was in Michigan at the time. So pretty close to Wisconsin. We crossed paths somehow, but Blackfoot wanted to go out and they took the same 16 LRCs, but the rig just didn't look big enough. So we added, we, this is like Reese's peanut butter cup or something, you know, we, we took the 4550 stack that we had in the palms, which was all horn loaded and put that in the center between two stacks of front loaded PA on each side. So, so, you know, what all they really wanted at the time was just more massive PA. So, you know, in, in to, by today's standards, you'd look at that and go, what are these guys thinking? Yeah. You know, with horn-loaded stack in the middle of some front-loaded stuff. But at the time, you know, it, it did the job, and, uh, and Blackfoot went out with Def Leppard as the opening act, Jeez. which was, uh, that was, really that was a lot of fun. Oh, my gosh. That was the high and dry, I think, was that first album. Right, yeah. Yeah, so uh, Def Leppard was the opening act, and we were mixing those guys uh, before they had onstage guys. They had uh, the drummer's brother, Robert, was mixing front of house at the time. But, yeah, we mixed them on, uh, I want to say it was a 16 by 6 Audi Systems monitor console. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, you guys want to go back, and we want to start to go into geezer mode here. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the first boards that I remember using, now on Blackfoot, we used an Audio Arts Wheatstone, so we, we were stepping up on that. But before that, even, we were using this Audi 16x6 console, which, which was made by a guy named Dave Tetruck. I don't know if you remember him, no. but he, he's, from, he's from the Northeast, mixed Peter, Paul, and Mary for years. Um, and he had this proprietary console that he built a few of, and I ended up with one of them. And, um, it's a 16 by six uh, monitor console. I was mixing um, 
Reba McIntyre on it one night with Eddie Rabbit. And we had just gotten the console. This is a great story. Uh, I'd just gotten the console back from repair. And right in the middle of Reba McIntyre, who's opening up for Eddie Rabbit, all of the metering on the console goes down. Every light, I, I thought the console died, except I looked up and no one on stage even reacted. So it was still passing audio. Right. <laughs> yeah. but I, so we limped through the, the show because I had no idea what was going on. We flipped the console over after the end of the show and took the back off. And the guy that had repaired the console just before we took it out left a file inside of it. Oh my <laughs> and the file had welded itself across a couple of the bars that killed all the metering on the console, wow. but didn't, didn't kill the audio. So, you know, seen it all, man. That is frightening. Great. Yeah. So, but we've done, you know, we did Blackfoot Def Leppard with a 16 by six monitor console and just continued to climb the, the ladder. And we were always, um, you know, we, we never were a big company really. Um, because we were always just operating on a shoestring, you know, little guys just trying to build stuff, build the next big rig. Yeah. But um, over the years, it just kind of came together, and I think tenacity and perseverance is really what's gotten us to where we are now. Well, going back to your dad's loan, so I, I assume you paid him back, and then did you go back to the same watering hole again, or by now did you have bank financing and figured it out how, um, how to do it a better way? Yeah. Certainly we paid that bank note off over time. Um, I don't think we took out another bank note for quite a few years, though. We just kind of limped along trying to do it out of cash flow, which really slowed the growth of the company down quite a bit, frankly. I mean, I've been doing this since the 70s. I incorporated in 85, but I was a hobbyist long before 85, obviously. But just, you know, trying to do it on the next shoestring or, you know, wait until I had the $300 for a clear power supply or whatever the scenario was. Uh, it took the company a long time to grow. And there were some years in there too, where, you know, we weren't the most professional, um, you know, during the Eddie rabbit, Blackfoot, Def Leppard days, there was a lot of decadence on the road, you know, and people were living a different lifestyle. We touched on this a little bit in, in some of our pre-discussion here before this, this conversation, but you know, Touring was a bit more Neanderthal back then, and, and right. people's priorities were different. And at that time, mine certainly wasn't to build a company. I was just out there having fun. Right. So, you know, over the years, it took a little longer. If I'd have been serious about business back in the early, early days, I think the company would have probably just been bigger sooner. But, you know, God well, has his way I think we can all say that. We, you know, we can certainly yeah, all yeah, say that. Yeah. I mean, I, I spent, you know, I wish I had my 20s and 30s back because although sure. I did create a level of success, I think, uh, you know, by today's standards, I could have done much, much better had I been a little bit more focused and a little less into yeah. the party and the fun and everything else. And Yeah, uh, but the basic was the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, <laughs> you know? that's true. That is true. Yeah. Well, and for me, the 90s. <laughs> you know, I didn't really yeah. stop that soon, but, uh, you know, certainly mellowed out. Like, I mean, you know, for myself, all the bad stuff went away uh, very early on. You know, really when I quit being a musician and I got into the business side of the music business, um, yeah. all, the, all the really bad things went away for me because I just couldn't. I couldn't do both, you know, I couldn't yeah. uh, be a partying lunatic and try to have some level of business sense, um, you know, and, and for myself, I was, 
initially I was working in the in the music retail business. So I was selling guitars and sound systems and eventually lighting systems to bands and to venues and to whatever in mm-hmm. my early 20s and late teens. And, um, you know, I didn't want to go out and get smashed with the band that I was doing business with. I was trying really hard not to do that. And so I just kind of got out of it. And, you know, I know uh, in our industry, it's obviously a thing or it has been. And we talked, I don't know if you heard the podcast we did with John Wiseman, but we talked at length about uh, addiction, something that's very close to him and something Mm -hmm. that he was able to pull through personally. And, you know, really, I mean, the fact that the guy's alive still is is a testament to either modern medicine or, or his tenacity. But... Um, you know, yeah, I, and we've, you know, you and I have touched on it personally on sidebars before, cause I, I went through a series of that as well, right. uh, a time like that, but, uh, you know, if you, if you want to stay alive, I think it, you, you got to wake up one day and just say, you know, uh, low enough is low enough. I don't want my life yeah. to get any worse than it is. I and agree. you pull yourself and focus on something better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and we talked also with doc McGee about it and, you know, really the business has become much more businesslike and there's a lot exactly. bigger money behind it. And you've got Live Nation yep. and all those big, huge companies out there, conglomerates. And and now on the yep. sound and lighting side and the production side of things, you've got big private equity and public companies. And, you know, you, you can't run it like a like a rodeo anymore. It has to be run like a business. And well, and certainly the level of production has gone up so far that from a safety standpoint yeah. and all of those other things that are involved in moving as much gear as we move on a daily basis, that kind of stupidity just has no place, you know, in, in the work environment. Right. It's, uh, it, it can't, people get hurt, people get killed. You know, it's a, it's a much different thing than it was when we just stacked up a half dozen speakers on each side and went to town. Yeah. That's exactly what yeah. I was going to mention next is that, you know, I remember, and I won't mention the production company's name or the tour that it was, right? But I think mm-hmm. really the first time that this was put under the microscope, because you're exactly right, you know, stacking cabinets while you're high or you got an alcohol buzz on, stacking up a rig, it's not going to fall over and crush people. But when you're flying stuff and pulling stuff off of the ground, yep. you know, that's a totally different game because there's actually engineering involved, you know, involved there. And, um, yep. So there was a, I, I want to call it probably in the early 80s, you know, the first famous ground support rig went down where you, you know, you basically, there was a big, you know, it's just a standard Thomas ground support rig. It was, you know, four or six towers. There was a storm that blew through and certainly the entire rig collapsed. And I believe it injured some people. I don't have the specifics on it. I know what tour it was, but that mm-hmm. was really the first time where lawyers came into this and they went, well, what was the state of mind of the crew while they were doing this? And what was, yeah. and there was a big, heavy investigation into the after hours activities that were going on, you know, when you were sitting on the tour bus. And I think, yeah. you know, to a large extent, I think that, you know, for lack of a better term, that sobered a lot of business owners up going, hey, you know what? And, you know, I, I think more and more, that's where the advent of drug testing and things like that came into the business because, Boy, your pants were down if you got caught, you know, if you condone that industry. The the problem was more severe than that, though, Henry, because most of the business owners were the guilty parties. So, you know, like I remember when when I first moved to the U.S. from Canada 
and I went to work for Martin. And, um, you know, at first it was mostly clubs and little rental companies. But then as we got into larger productions and touring, I'd say it was probably 93, 94. And I was pretty naive, not into drugs at all. And, and I went out to, I forget which show I actually remember, but I'm not going to say it. And I'm standing front of house next to the lighting guy. And he pulls out one of those little keyboard drawers on his, on his AVO desk. And he's got like, I don't know, seven or eight lines all nicely cut up and pulls out a straw and does the first two and closes the, or hands the straw to me. And I go, no, no, I'm good. Thanks. And closes the drawer back and gets back to mixing the band. And I'm thinking to myself at that time, this is this guy's job. Like he's got to, he's got to strike this gear at the end and he's got to do, you know, a decent job of lighting the show and he's doing blow during the show right at front of house in the middle of 20,000 people. This is insane. And I'm not uh, sure that back then any of us really looked at it as this is going to be my career. You know, I mean, it it was good times and let's, let's kick up our heels while we can, but I'm not sure that, you know, really thought this is how I got to put my kids through college right. you know so <laughs> well and so and here we are <laughs> you know what I mean putting our kids through yeah. college so it's exactly. really bizarre yeah. so I'll tell you one yeah. of the one of the things that that I really personally love and we're jumping around a little bit here but but that's okay so I read something about your ba- your I think you were on vacation or something in in Phoenix and You made a habit, and I do very similar things, so I was really impressed by reading this, but you made it a habit when you went on vacation of pulling out the yellow pages and looking up the local companies and just going and knocking Mm -hmm. on the door and saying, hey, how you doing? And I think it was Sunbelt Scenic, maybe, that you went and and did that with. And then you came up with this plan that, hey, guys, in the summer, you're not busy doing any lighting out here because it's so bloody hot and yet in the midwest it's festival season and lots of shed tours and stuff why don't you send lighting gear to us during that period and we'll send audio gear to you during the period of when you've slowed down and yeah yeah, and that worked yeah we did that that you're exactly right about how it it got kicked off. Well, I went in over there and just to visit and say hi and check out their operation. And Sunbelt Scenic at the time was a staging lighting house that also did a lot of scenic construction. So they weren't really in the music end of things so much. They did corporate product reveals and all those kinds of things, but they were heavy in staging and lighting and clearing in Milwaukee was only audio. In fact, it was Clearwing Audio and Case Company was the name of the company at that time. Mm-hmm. So we got to talking with the principals at Sunbelt Scenic, and we crafted what we jokingly called the NAFTA of production at the time, where that Sunbelt would send us a stage, a Thomas Tomcat, whatever, climber roof, and a lighting system for the summertime, and I would send them audio in the wintertime. And the goal was that they build their sound department with my assets and I build my staging lighting department with their assets. And we just kept it, kept it fair by sending equal value of equipment for a period of time. So if I sent them a hundred thousand dollars worth of gear for a month, they, they could send me $200,000 worth of gear for two weeks kind of a thing, you know, however it balanced out. 
So we did that, and the goal was that we build our own our, our businesses on the other company's assets until we didn't need it anymore. And we did that for 10 to 12 years, and it worked fantastically. Um, and then at some point, there was a falling out between the principals at Sunbelt Scenic, and they actually ended up going under in the Phoenix market, yeah. which happened to ironically coincide with the the transition of mask sound their business from the father to the sons i think is about what this happened and mm-hmm. and the sons decided to pull most of the attributes back to new jersey so they pulled the phoenix office of mask sound out as well so there was suddenly a hole in the phoenix market and i wasn't stepping on any of my friends toes to go there and i knew the market you know, because we had been trading back and forth for a few years, not only gear, but after a while, we started actually doing it with people as well. So I knew the market and it just kind of was, you know, the planets lined up right. And it was time to take a look at another office. Now, uh, the other serendipity about Phoenix was, of course, the it's an inverse busy season from Milwaukee. Yeah. So it gave us an opportunity to maximize the ROI on our gear year round rather than having more acute you know, downtimes in either of the markets. And you know what so, I love about this whole thing, though? It's 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 brilliant in its simplicity. You know what I mean? It's just so friggin' obvious and simple and straightforward that, like, why doesn't everybody do this, you know? And uh, I love it. Yeah, well, it worked out really, really well. And like I said, it just through its own organic nature, Sunbelt you know, closed up uh, 12 years later or something. But by then, we had a pretty robust lighting and staging business here in Milwaukee. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so we started up in Phoenix, and, and that seemed to work well. The only real disadvantage was the fact that it was 1,800 miles away. Right. So, uh, you know, the transfer of gear and all of that kind of got to be pricey, which is what ended up with us starting to take a look at something else, which ended up being Denver uh, in 2017. And Denver, you know, strategically is really good for us for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's a nice, it's a really nice market, Red Rocks and all the other stuff going on there. But it's exactly halfway between Milwaukee and Phoenix. Right. So for our boomerang trucks and whatnot that go back and forth now transferring gear, it's just a lot more efficient than running empty trucks 1,800 miles at any point or something silly like that. So today, how often are you transferring? How often are trucks going between well, those two uh, locations? Well, it's it's kind of by need, but right now in the busier time of the year, um, because Denver and Milwaukee have the same busy seasons, Phoenix is a little bit is the opposite. So right now we're we're doing it at least a once a month. But if there's something that where it really makes sense for us to optimize the ROI on our own gear versus subrenting, we'll run a truck if, uh, if the numbers pan out. Because um, I mean, let's face it, nobody owns enough gear these days. Yeah, um, and talk about the biggest of the biggest in the world, but none of us can have enough of the right gear at the right time to satisfy everybody without going to our friends. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that's another thing we work really hard on. You know, we're, we're not here for world domination. We peacefully coexist with all the other players in the market in a, in a pretty good fashion. So um, we love to help each other out. Yeah. Well, and I'll tell you what, like, so I, I read somewhere that you have, I, I think it's around 50 or 60 full-time staff, but I went on your website over the weekend and, I, you know, I actually took the time to count and it was around 160. 
Yeah, it's yeah. I think it's fifty or sixty in Milwaukee, maybe or oh, 50, yeah. Is and that what it, it is? Yeah, and it's yeah, it's probably that. Maybe a little more in Phoenix, and I think Denver is up to maybe thirty or something now. So yeah, all combined, full time, we've got a hundred sixty ish is the number we usually use. But of course, then we we incorporate a lot of freelancers on show dates. Right. Uh, we just we just came back from Boston calling. Uh, we were doing three or four stages of sound lights and video there, and I think we had thirty something people just at that festival. Wow! Well, I, yeah. you know, I don't want to alarm you or anything, but you've become rather large. <laughs> You're kind of a big <laughs> deal, Greg. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I've never been anywhere else. You know, so right. in my little reference, it's always just been little clearwing, and every once in a while, I'll say something like that, and somebody will go, "You know, uh, you're not that small anymore." Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it, just like the early days, guys, I, I I shouldn't say now we don't have a business plan. But back then, I never really had a business plan. My my goal was just to do the next, you know, that saying, you're only as good right. as your last gig. Right. So I, my goal was always just to do the next show right and Incredibly see where it organic. takes organic, yeah. Yep. Putting yeah. one foot in front of the other has taken us places that I never would have thought of going, right. frankly. So. Well, speaking of organic, and, and uh, you know, feel free to tell me later to cut this section out, but um, I would assume that you're getting loads of calls from the uh, private equity or public-backed uh, oh, companies <laughs> that are looking yeah. to expand as fast as humanly possible. And yeah. so, I mean, you know, I think I'm not going to ask you what your exit strategy or your plan is, because I'm guessing you're going to say, I don't have one right now. I'm enjoying myself too much. And that's kind of where I'm at, too. But um, so, you know, like, is it hard to compete against guys that are backed by seemingly unlimited, you know, uh, resources? Yeah, resources. Yeah, you and, know, this is. This is funny that you bring this up and not funny, funny, but um, yeah, because one of the, you know, I'm a sole owner still. So, you know, I've, as I've said a lot to people lately, one of the, the biggest obstacle in our future growth is my personal wealth or lack of it, you know, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, there's only so much you can do before you just kind of run out of attributes, you know, right. and so, yeah, certainly we get letters all the time. There's so much private money out there now and, right. and venture capital looking to expand and, you know, roll things together in five years, sell it off and, and all that. But, you know, one of the things that we've always really um, had our own little sort of advantage of is, is being able to make decisions quickly without going to the board and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, we touched on it, uh, and I, I told you in, in our pre-interview that I wanted to not spend too much time on it. But yeah, there was a group of people, I think it was drunken stagehands, to be honest with you, at one point that were in a bar hooping it up. And they said, yeah, those guys are clearly winging it. And, you know, we took offense to that because they were making sport of us at the time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I embraced it a little bit later on, because we, it, we did have the ability to turn on a dime. And yeah. we did have the ability to make decisions quickly based on opportunity and not have to, you know, go through all kinds of metrics. And, you know, we do more of that now than we did at the time, for sure. Well, but Greg, look around, too. Winging it isn't such a bad thing. Trust me. I mean, there's, there's a lot of people yeah, in so, our industry who are going to spend the next 10 hours in crazy meetings for budgeting or yep. whatever it yep. is yep. while you're actually running your business. 
So, and you know, the other thing that yeah, we get a lot, I get a lot of positive feedback from people that work here as well. And we pulse check them a lot. I mean, I'm, I'm the owner of the company with 160 people and I still walk around and strive every day to know everyone's name, but, but it's all about the culture and keeping a family business feel about our business. Now you touched on my my succession plan. We are, you know, I'm 67 years old this year. So mm. I'm starting to run out of gas a little bit on actually humping gear. Well, I, I ran out of gas on that a long time ago, actually. But, <laughs> but um, I do have three sons in the business, and I do have a an awesome second-tier hierarchy of guys that have been with the company a long time who make fantastic decisions, who, you know, now we are more business than we used to be. We do look at metrics and, you know, return on investment and all those things that you have, you have to, to look yeah, at when you have to be a business at scale. Yeah. But but certainly there was a time where staying small and being able to turn on a dime and, and take advantage of, of a good wind in our sales because we weren't that big. So, you know, I when we talk to people about whether, you know, our inner group, about whether we should entertain venture capital or whatever to compete with the giants in our industry, most of the time the rank and file here would say, no, we'd rather stay a little smaller and keep the kind of vibe and culture that we have here. That's fantastic. So, Greg, one, one comment that I wanted yeah. to make about the, the clearly winging it thing, you know that you're starting to threaten people in a marketplace or you know that you're growing successfully when other companies try to diminish you in, in common conversation, call it wow. a jealousy thing, call it a threat thing. So, you know, I looked at that comment and I said, yeah, now this, this company is professional enough, doing, doing enough yeah, things. You must be winning. You must yeah, you're be winning, winning and you're on other that. people's radar, right? Yeah. So, well, there's, there's no question that when that came up, it was an envy kind of a thing or whatever. Oh, yeah. That's and, right. You know, my, my, administrative, my, my other administrative guys here really hate it when I talk about that little thing in, in public or on the radio or whatever. Right. But it was part of our evolution that was really more positive than negative because somebody was trying to drag us down by that. And, and rather than let it go that way, we kind of embraced it and said, hey, you know, in its own way, this is an advantage that we have. Yeah. So, you know, that, that's why yeah. every once in a while it comes up. And I'll, I'll tell you a really it. quick version of that same kind of story is when I was at Martin and we were finally starting to really make waves and and uh, bite into high end's ankles. Um, Robert Mokri went into a customer and and uh, the guy said, oh, it's funny you show up. I'm meeting with Marcel from Martin tomorrow. And he goes, Martin, isn't that that sailboat company or fishing company from from uh, Norway or something? And um, yeah. and so, of course, the customer told me that the next day and I did everything I could and closed that deal and kept Mokri out of that deal and yeah. fought Mokri tooth and nail on every deal I went up against him. And I made sure he knew he remembered that he said that and we actually interviewed him on this podcast and i said remember when you said oh no i never said that you know and hey, yeah, uh, well, you know well, it drove me for hate, 5 baby. years it, that that one yeah. little comment he made drove me and pushed me to do great things for a while and and yep. uh, so it fuels you that kind of stuff and yep, you know exactly. the other thing yep. on the topic Haters of gonna hate. if you take it and run you're good oh hell yeah on the topic of uh, private equity so you know, we'll get out of this in a minute, but it it's, you know, I'm a businessman at the end of the day and I sit back and watch and I talk to some people behind the scenes on some of these things. I'm very good friends with some people in high places in some of these companies. And 
So the, the private equity thing is interesting because if you are purchased by a company that's been purchased by private equity, you're basically just watering down the entire process. So in other words, if private equity is going to pay seven times EBITDA, and we're going to get real geeky yep. and boring here for a second, but if private equity is going to pay seven times EBITDA, the company who's buying you with private equity wants to pay four or five times. They want a margin in that deal. Mm -hmm. And it gets mm -hmm. even worse when you're talking about being purchased by a public company. And I don't remember the exact numbers, but um, when Wayne Heisinger was running around buying up, uh, and he did it twice. He did it with the video company with, with Blockbuster, and Blockbuster. he did it with uh, uh, Republic Waste. Is that what it was called? Yeah, it was the garbage yeah. companies, yep. The garbage mm -hmm. company. And so what he did is he got private money and through or public money through the public markets, his company was public and through the public markets, he at one point was getting roughly 15 or 16 times earnings is what his stock mm -hmm. was trading at. So he would go out and talk to little garbage companies and say, you know, I'd like to buy your company. And they'd say, well, you know, we've been offered other deals at, at three times EBITDA, but we only want to do a deal at five times. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 10 times EBITDA if you'll take, take it in stock. And they'd say, well, mm -hmm. geez, okay, I'll do that deal. And he's making, you know, the market's giving him 15 yeah. or 16 times EBITDA and he's paying eight or 10 times EBITDA to buy these companies. He's making good money, you know? So he's getting mm -hmm. a million to buy a company for half a million or getting to 10 million to buy one for five. And so that's what I learned early on and why I've never taken on private equity money. And it, I've been approached every bit as many times as anyone else has. And yeah. the reason is even uh, what the private equity guys are going to do is they're going to try and buy you for five or six or seven times. They're going to then add a bunch of companies to yours and build a bigger uh boat yep. basically roll the whole thing up roll the yep. whole thing up and then they're going to go sell it to a bigger private equity company for nine times or yep. um or they're even going to go times uh revenue instead of earnings and get an even bigger margin on that or they're going to go public and so yep. i just said why don't i just you know if they're going to do all those things why don't i just do it myself you know what do i need them for and what you well, need you them know, for the is like in your side of the business, it's such a resource-intensive business to operate. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that's the tough part. And, and but that, that, and but that's part of the challenge. You know, the capital is is one element of it, but at the same time, you know, this industry as well as I do. Uh, uh, this whole industry is built on relationships and culture and and those kinds of things. And as much as private equity can satisfy the one side of the equation and provide to some people, maybe unlimited CapEx capabilities, the, the culture and the, the, the family feel for a business in my case is, is, you know, when you've got a stranger at the table and their only focus is on the ratios and the margins and the this and the that, it takes away from some of the things that are really important to, to what really drives your company, which is the people on the ground. I completely so, agree. you know, that's, that's where what we've struggled with it because you know, people don't want to live their lives based on a handbook. I mean, you've got to have one, but you know what I'm saying. Right. It's, uh, they well, they want people want to deal with people. But yeah. some of the problem we're running into is on the supply side, on your side, 
some of the people you're dealing with now aren't the same as they used to be. So where you used to deal with Bob, the production manager, or, you know, Tony, the lighting director, or whoever, now you're dealing with some corporate, uh, you know, whether it's the promoter or an accountant or even a corporate management firm that's managing the process. So, you know, they're bean counters. They don't necessarily have a huge history in the business. And all they want is the number, and and they want to cover their ass. That's it. So well, and, and you know what? I get that because we're all running businesses and business is business. But the place I really stumble on that scenario is when the it's no longer comparing apples to apples, right. and and the value of having a bona fide experienced contractor is thrown out the window over the price. Um, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, the audience who's, is who's paying for the show and they deserve a good product. Right. So, yeah. you know, for the promoter that's just turning out shows and wants to make as much money on everyone as he can, that's all well and good as long as you're, you're keeping what the customer wants in mind as well. Right. Absolutely. That's, yeah. That's, that's interesting angle. Yeah. So, you know, it's. I mean, you started in audio, of course, you built your first sound yep. systems and, and, uh, but as you've already said, you've, you've evolved and partly by way of the partnership with Sunbelt Scenic and others, you've now evolved into uh, lighting, sound, video. I believe you also have trucking as well, right? I do have a trucking division yep, and we do backline as well. Yeah. So, so how mm-hmm. do you bounce between all of those disciplines? <laughs> Uh, oh, sometimes not so well. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot to think about. And especially when you're talking about capital, uh, you know, we did a deal this year, which we weren't intending to do, but we, we ran into a, a really nice offer from one of the, the big vendors, the speaker companies, and we weren't intending to stick a bunch of money into audio this year. But we kind of came across the deal we couldn't refuse and, and went down that road because it was opportunity driven. Mm-hmm. But it meant that I couldn't stick as much money as I wanted to into lighting. Right. You know, now uh, in lighting is we are doing so many th- projects in lighting right now. 800 fixtures, 900 fixtures, you Jesus. know, stuff that's just off the hook. So, you know, to even skip one year of CapEx investment in lighting you know, you know how fast lighting is evolving. Oh my of course, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really fast. I go to some of these trades. So sound, you know, I'm so the guy video, that goes, though. That's the brutal thing. They all are. Well, you're right. Yeah, you're right. But I mean, I'm the guy that goes around at the trade show and, and actually has the nuts to say to the, the guy, the sales, will you stop inventing stuff every six weeks so right. we can just catch up for crying out loud? Yeah. But you know, uh, so it, it does get challenging when you're trying to distribute money in enough directions to keep all of your departments state of the art. It, that does become a challenge. And then you start to get into that question of whether venture capital is a good thing to consider. And then it's just, you know, it's a rock rolling downhill from there. Yeah. Well, so, so Greg, yeah. I have a, I have a question for you at this point, you know, for yeah. sure, <clears throat> excuse me, traditionally it used to be, you'd buy a PA rig, a line array, whatever it was, and yep. you'd work that line array eight to 10 years before you even considered you know, getting rid of it. Right. You know, so now, you know, and I I just want your personal opinion on this, the product cycles now are about in the three year range. So if you, you know, if you blend video and lighting and sound all together, you know, technology changes or significant technology changes or market demand are happening between that three and that four year point. Now, 
So has that changed yep. your perspective in terms of, okay, I got to buy this gear now versus renting it, number one, because I just can't, I can't do this in three to four years. I got to have a longer rent cycle on that. But at what point, what are your thoughts on getting out of gear these days? What do you look at? Because I know, you know, you're talking about the capitalization needs and, you know, mixing it between yep. all those departments. So how are, well, you trying, how are you balancing that? You're exactly right. It's changed radically. So you remember we were talking about the LRC a few minutes ago, the, right. the speaker cabinet I built in 1972, I think it was, for Eddie Rabbit. It cost me $2,250 a box to build those cabinets in 1972. I sold the last of them in 2005 for $1,750 a piece. <laughs> so, I used, so I used them for 30 years or something oh like that God. and, and lost $500 on them. That's okay. But now, you know, we bought a, an L acoustics K one rig and what must've been 15 or something like that. I don't know. We've had it maybe four or five years and you know, they've already come out with new amplifiers. Um, there's every other speaker company has jumped in line to keep the evolution of speakers rolling over every couple of years um, so it's becoming increasingly difficult every year to keep up with CapEx requirements. Just in quantity alone, not considering, you know, the change in technological advancement. So it's, it's one of the biggest challenges we have. I mean, millions of dollars don't just grow on trees, you know, unless you're some of the, the bigger guys than I am. But even them, I think it's, you know, we all look at subcontracting or subrenting more than we used to just because the the demands of owning it all are so acute now. Well, and there's always someone out there who has something idle when you need it. And, yep. you know, just like your uh, Sunbelt situation where it was seasonal mm -hmm. in that situation, you know, if you've got a Rolodex or a network or whatever, and we actually tried to create a market around this uh, with a company that was quite uh, simply named Rental Source. Um, but mm -hmm. we tried to create a market around someone having it, someone needing it, and just basically putting those two together. And what we found, the, the cornerstone of our software required that we were tied into your rental software yep. and the other party's rental software so that we knew availability. And yep. no one wanted to give us that information. No one wanted, no, like some competitors didn't even want the other competitor to know how many of them they had, you yep. know? Yep. So, I or what they that had exercise. even. Yep. I remember that endeavor when you guys launched that. And I actually think, and still think it's, it's a really good way for people to, you know, source stuff. The yeah. problem is you've got to have willing you got to have willing players, and you're right. Everybody holds their cards so close to their chest, and yeah. you know yeah. companies are. T I had a company one time. <laughs> this was many many years ago. Guy calls me from a, a company up north, Wisconsin. He goes, "What are you doing doing a show up here? We don't come to Milwaukee and do a show. You know, oh it's like God. there was a line. Wow. There was a line I shouldn't cross territorially. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, people can be that way about gear too. You know, it's just." It gets very territorial and competitive, and, and then you've got pricing to talk about and what right. some people will actually rent their gear for compared to you that are trying to, you know, and, and then you talk about just guys that have a bunch of gear in a truck behind the shed out back of the house that are, are doing gigs all the time as right. a company when they off work at 5 o'clock, you know. Yeah. I mean, it just, 
it 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 just keeps running and running on well, all the different you, ways. We spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and two or three years trying to get this thing off the ground, and yeah. Yeah. the industry as a whole just wouldn't support it. And most of that was based around secrecy. It wasn't a cost. Yeah. I mean, you know, if anything, um, we were almost free. And so we yeah. didn't we didn't charge you to list your stuff. We we just took a little piece when the a cross rental happened, uh, similar to gear source on the I sale that, of gear. I think that we were involved in that. One of the challenges we had at the time was, um, didn't your thing have to read everybody? Else? You know, we all have different rental softwares. So wasn't there a a human factor of having to input the data into your system from ours, or was it extracted? I don't remember how that Well, worked. we were trying to go both ways. So we were trying first to do it as a manual uh, setup. That didn't work. And then to do it okay. as a um, an API directly into your rental software, and that didn't work. And so yeah. it, it just, again, it was all sort of covered in, in secrecy. And I will tell you that there's, you know, a new... Um, sort of ground rumble for us to do something along those lines. And, you know, because of gear source, we have a pretty solid network of yep. who is out there and where they are in the world and what kind of gear they have. And right. so I mm -hmm. do believe that at some point we are going to go back down that, that path and, and, you know, really do it properly. And, you know, Google has taught us all a lot of things over the last 20 years or 15 or 18 yeah. or however many years Google has taught us, first of all, that you got to try and find a way to do it for free and, yep. um, and that you have to, you know, just really make data available to everyone and, and make it really easy to manipulate that data and figure out who's got what and where it's going and all those types of things. And so I think we have the ability to do that, but I want to quickly go back to, I asked you about the, the different disciplines, lighting, sound, video, trucking, and we got into the financial aspect of it, but um, is it as simple as the fact that you've got three sons in the business? Does one manage lighting, one manages audio, one manages video? I mean, that would be amazing. Well, it, it didn't start out that way. But, um, you know, we also do systems integration. So we have a, a separate company called Clearwing Systems Integration, CSI. Right. So I have, I have one son who's the general manager of the Milwaukee production division right now. I have one son who's the general manager of the integration division for Milwaukee and Phoenix. And then I have a third son who's the youngest who's just climbing the ranks right now. And he does all of our, our, our uh, public outreach stuff, you know, our... Um, vendor showcases and uh, AV1L101s that we do. We do a lot of public outreach stuff in all of the, the regions to bring kids from the schools in and do training classes oh, and do cool. our, a mini mini LDIs kind of, if you Smart. will. Yeah, really good. Uh, yeah, so I've got one son who's, who's driving all of that. Well, the um, issue is you needed but, a couple more kids. Well, you know, I had nine kids. Jesus. <laughs> we're you were busy. talking about... <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, get the others working, yeah. will you? We need a few Well, as soon kids. as I get out of the house, yeah, you yeah. know, my youngest is 12, so I'm still I'm still working on Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> you know, I've seen some heads of companies and a 12-year-old could probably, you know, prove to be much smarter than some of these guys. So, uh Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, so, especially for us old analog cats, you know, right. the the evolution from analog to digital is something that kind of left me in the dust a little bit. Yeah, all of us. I mean, it, it really, it was so mishandled by so many different companies, and even on our side, you know, just understanding the the 
sort of trends and patterns and timing of when people are going to be unloading analog gear and moving into digital or whatever. And, you know, I mean, the PM 4000 was always the greatest example of that, where one day we were selling them for $35,000, $40,000. And what seemed like the next day, you couldn't give them away for a thousand. I mean, I remember we had one where it was like, come pick it up. It's yours, you know, in a case. I, uh, <laughs> one of my guys sent me a, a post, uh, a screenshot off of, I think it was eBay maybe about two weeks ago of a brand new PM 5000 brand new looking anyway, by the photos PM 5000 in a road case listed for $799. Oh God. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> I mean, you can't buy the road case for that. No, you know? Not even close. The PM 4000 is the best hundred dollar console that you can own right now. If you're lucky <laughs> enough to move it. Right. So, so again, yeah. going back to, I'm beating a, a dead horse here, but yep. I, I just, I'm really curious personally. So in your company, it sounds like you've got GMs for each of the physical locations, but do you also Correct. have heads of like a head of lighting for the entire company, a head of audio for the entire company where you can sit with those yes. four people and discuss, you know, things like CapEx budgets or, um, whatever. Yes. So you do. Yep. Yeah, I'm still the president and CEO of the company, but then we've got a GM at each location, as you said. But in between, I've got a COO who is Dave Temby at the Phoenix office. He was the general manager at Mask Sound when Mask closed up in Phoenix. So that's where we got Dave. And he was he certainly had good experience in the business at that stage of the game even. And he's He's come along to be a great asset in the in the uh, the driving end of the business here. I've got a, a controller on the financial side as well, uh, who's a Milwaukee guy, so I can sit with him anytime I need to on the financial side. Um, and then we've got a director of engineering who oversees all the packaging and whatnot for audio and lighting. And then of course we've got audio division heads and lighting division heads, and you know. Um, Right. All kinds of guys that are in the middle to make sure that the overall plan is is executed, and we do very regular video teleconferencing, not at, not only at the executive level but at the at the uh, corporate level, and then all of the technical levels have their own as well, so that we're keeping everybody on the same pages all at the same time. Do you use Google or Zoom? Uh, uh, we actually, you, you mean for the teleconferencing thing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, video conference. Yeah. Yeah, we have a thing called Life Size, oh, okay. which is uh, a camera and a projector in each office, and you know the conference rooms fill up, and everybody can talk to everybody. That oh, works how, pretty well. How two thousand five? Yeah, well, <laughs> we do the camp. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's That's uh, okay. It we use we use Google Meet, and um, because GearSource has recently become a completely uh, remote company, so we have people in. Uh, four or five countries, five countries now, six countries now, and um, all over the place. I mean, we have pe people scattered all over the place, and there was only four or five people that were coming into the head office. So we just said, you know what? We still have the head office. It's The building is physically there, um, but nobody goes in. Uh, maybe one or two days a week, people will be in there. Um, and so we do a ton of video conferencing and I've noticed recently that a lot more companies are moving on to zoom. So it was really just a personal kind of, uh, poll that I was doing there to see which product you were using. I had, I had an interesting experience the other day with, uh, with a video conference that I did. And, um, so we were talking to a, uh, a Chinese vendor of ours 
on Skype. So it was a group meeting the other day. And all of a sudden, I get a message, and he says, uh, from the other Chinese guy that was on there, and he says, hey, uh, do me a favor, turn on your video, because the owner of this company wants to see your face to judge your character. Wow. And I thought that was really interesting. When, but I'm on, when I'm on Chinese video conference, I just, I turn on video so that I can read their lips and try and figure out what the hell they're saying. <laughs> that sounds like there's a Seinfeld episode in there somewhere to me. <laughs> Every day is a Seinfeld episode over here. Yeah, that's for that. sure. Here, here too. Well, you know, you one of the things you asked me about on the front end too. We've been talking about gear, and we didn't really talk too much about old stuff, other than mentioning a few names. But you know, like BGW seven fifty. Boy, that takes you back. Hell yeah. But you you asked me what I you know what I I think is missing, or or what are needs for future inventions, and and this may be as ethereal as coming up with the name Clearwing. But I've always said that you know, first of all, I want a PA that is loud enough that the light bends around the stacks in the front of it. <laughs> so it, it's really got some really good output. And, uh, and, and then I want to make sure that those same speakers are inflatable so we can just oh. open up a little box, <laughs> blow them up, and they sound that good. And then I want post-amplified wireless technology, too, so we don't have to have looms. Oh, so, Jesus. You know, and when you're talking to any other guys out there, if they're working on any of that kind of heady stuff, I'd like to know about it in advance. Well, you'll be the first we tell, I promise you, on okay. that one. Yeah, those are some really good ideas. I've taken some notes. You may want to go back and look at some Nikolai Tesla videos because he had a way of shooting electricity across a room. Uh, yeah, yeah, probably. Okay. Well, I'm hoping we can come up with some of that because, boy, you know, bigger, heavier, more trucks, more expense. It's all. And then, you know, you just touched on another dynamic that's new. It's kind of like the digital age, which is the working from home thing. Yeah. You know, I mean. It's, yeah, we're in an age where everybody can do their job from wherever they are. And certainly I can't even remember how we pulled off some of these tours and stuff back in the day of the, you know, landline. The fax machine was a revolution. Yeah. But now everybody wants to be everywhere all the time. And, and, and the freelancer thing is getting to be a harder challenge to deal with, too, as companies. I don't know if you guys hear much about this in rhetoric with other people, but every manufacturer I talk to, every cleaning company you name a supplier out there everyone is having trouble finding people that's the thing um, and that was one of the drivers yeah. for me as well greg in building our business was we're in wellington florida which is a sleepy polo community and yeah. you're not going to find you might find a great bookkeeper you might find a good warehouse person uh, even warehouse people, yeah. because it's so expensive to live around here. You got to go outside of Wellington to find warehouse people even. So you're not, it's not going to be really easy to grow your staff based in Wellington. And I'll give you a great example. We just hired a really, really great new marketing girl in, in gear source named Perry, and she's in Canada. <clears throat> so, mm -hmm. you know, we just hired a new ops guy um, who's based in Germany. He's a Greek guy based in Germany. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. so when you can go outside of your local talent pool and hire really, really great people, regardless of where they are, you know, that's a very powerful thing. And for our company, because of VoIP technology and video conferencing and cloud technology, you don't need mm -hmm. to physically be in a building. So you do have to, you have to shift your culture. You have to put in place yep. some some protections and some systems that you might not otherwise have to put in place to make sure that your data is safe and, 
and that people are working a reasonable amount of number of, of hours every day and um you know to keep people motivated and things like that because sometimes it's really easy to get distracted or depressed or bummed out or whatever it is when you're sitting alone in your house and the phone isn't ringing or something um so you do have to put some systems in place and stuff but i love it i mean i i think the benefits far outweigh and obviously you're in a much more physical business where it's not quite well as yeah much, I was gonna say that, have, that's a great option but that's a great option but when you get a truck to load it doesn't work too well <laughs> yeah right yeah. a virtual truck load <laughs> You know, Amazon yeah, will yeah. come up with it, but, I'm sure. No, you're right. I mean, I don't have an office at our shop anymore. Right. I, you know, I, I've passed on enough of the administrative tasks that I come in a couple of days a week or do everything else that I need to do. I have, I'm fortunate enough to have a beautiful place on a, on a lake here in Wisconsin, yeah. and I put a loft in the boathouse, and that's where my office is. So I find a lot of them there, and, and certainly it keeps me it keeps me away from some of the day-to-day drama that can happen around a shop that really bogs you down. So I find more productivity uh, being remote, Well, usually. me as well, because I'm one of those guys that if you invite me to a meeting, and Henry, you know, plug your ears because I don't want you laughing at me or anything, <laughs> but if you invite me to a meeting, I'm going to take over. If you invite me into a task, I'm going to take over. And I can't uninvolve myself. I have a really hard so you time. Have control issues. That's what you're telling us. You have control issues. No, it's it's not really a control <laughs> issue. It's just a passion. I, I just have an incredible okay. amount of passion in everything I do. And so, you know, when, when I'm going to be a part of something, I'm going to be a part of something. I'm not going to sit a fly on the wall. I have a really hard time. No, with I get it. No, so, I so, the bear up a little so bit I've there. uninvited myself to a lot of these situations and allowed people to really just roam freely and, and do their own thing. And I think that's where you really see your people shine and stuff. So like I said, it doesn't work in every job. It doesn't work in every company. But certainly like even in your company, you know, if you had marketing people that were remote or or even yep. uh, finance people or whatever, um, that can certainly work. But then you know, when it's not the whole company, you end up with some cultural problems or some envy. You know, why can Bob work from home, but I got to come into the office every day and I drive 40 minutes and blah, 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 blah. So it's exactly it's, the drama. That's the drama I was just referring to. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. For, for me, it became kind of an all or nothing thing because I, I did start having some of that stuff. Well, you know, Henry doesn't have to come into the office every day. Why should I have to come in? And so, you know, at some point I just went, you're right. Why do you have to come in? And when I felt yeah, our you know, system exact- was strong enough, it, it, that's when yeah, we just pulled the trigger. Yep, You're exactly right, though. If you pull back and delegate to people, that's when you will see who the real stars are. If, if you're going to do it for them, some of them will let you. And that just bogs you down, and you know you're not really seeing where your talent lies. So yep. I agree with you, hundred yep. percent. Oh, absolutely. You have to you have to step out of the way for other people to to step into the limelight at some point. So, Greg, I wanted to get sure. your perspective on <clears throat> your outreach, what your son is doing there. You know, yep. so obviously he's bringing people in for seminars, product showcases, things like that. Yep. Yep. Um, how many of your employees or your future employees are you getting out of that? So are you using that as a, uh, a test tube experiment to see who the best and the brightest is in that group and maybe pull them off of the side to get a resume or something like that from them? Are you doing that? Well, at all? I, you know, it, it, yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is all by conscious plan. It's, and it was similar to the Sunbelt Scenic thing a little bit. What we're 
what we really look for in all aspects of our business is any way to allow it to be incestuous. Meaning, you know, we our, our tagline is production sales service systems. So when we, we have a pro shop in each office, we have a service department in each office, we have production and installations in, in each office. So if somebody comes in to buy a roll of gaff tape, they see a window where, oh, I didn't know you guys would repair moving lights. You know, or they bring their moving light in, they go, oh, you mean I can buy fog fluid here? You know, our, our business model is designed for cross traffic. So um, that's, that's been a big part of it. And we roll that into these community outreach pieces as well, where, you know, all the people that come to an event, uh, which we like to do in the warehouse, a couple of them have gotten too big and we've had to go to a convention center in Phoenix recently, but we're just, we're going into a new building in Phoenix. And I think we're going to pull that uh, vendor showcase back to the new warehouse in November in Phoenix. But when people show up to one of these events, they enter through the pro shop, They go past all of the other offerings that we have on their way to the community space, which is where we set up, you know, pipe and drape booths and all that for all the different manufacturers and vendors. And my son, Sam in Phoenix is the liaison between all of those vendors. And he works with our marketing department to get everything out on all the social media sites to get people to RSVB come in. You know, we do food trucks and, you know, other pieces of it so that that people have ulterior motives to come. Um, And then we do take names and do and harvest all of the information for future initiatives, which could mean employment. Um, You know, we do the USITT conference every year. We set up a booth there. We get a lot of good leads out of that. Um, We send a couple people down to a job fair that they have at the, I'm not going to have the name of it now. I'm going to have a little bit of a brain stick, but there's a, there's a school in North Carolina. That's a theatrical school, North North Carolina school of the arts. Yeah, yeah, probably. And we do it. We go down and attend the job fair there every year looking to harvest people. So it's all driven at, you know, getting people to be able to see the multifaceted nature of Clearwing. So if they're interested in production, they can do that while they're passionate about that. But there's still a place for them to go if they decide they want to stay closer to home and go into integrations later. Let me ask you a or question if, about that, though. When when you're doing that, when yeah. you're when you're going and drawing people from job fairs or from whatever it is, or, or you're doing a booth or, or some sort of an outreach to bring people in, are you showing them glitz and glam? Like, are you showing them, look, you can have backstage passes to all these really cool shows and be a part of creating this beautiful event? Or are you showing them humping cable and loading trucks and sweeping warehouse floors? Well, I, I, you know, at a trade show or whatever, certainly we're showing them the technology that we utilize and we're showing them, you know, really nice pictures of events we've done. And I mean, that's... Let's face it, before you dated your wife, you, 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 you liked the way she looked, right? So, you know. <laughs> so the, the so, shop sweeping we, and toilet cleaning comes a little later yeah. once you've already hooked them. Well, but, well, you know, but we are blatantly honest with people as well, especially about like this season we're going into right now here in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. People work hard and we tell them that, you know, it's going to be if you're passionate about this business, you know, this is one of the things and I'm not disrespecting full sale or anybody else that teaches these kinds of curriculums in their, their academia. But 
you know, we just have come to find out that we like people that have done three years in bowling alleys a little better, you know, because they don't come out expecting to mix the Rolling Stones in the next six months because I know how to run this or that console or whatever. And I'm not saying everybody that comes out of a full sale or something like that does. No, I'm just using that that to depict the difference, you know. So, um, yeah, it's let's face it. This business is hard work. Yeah. And you start bottom. Where don't you start at the bottom in life? Um, but it's the same in so any business. Have... I mean, when you go to medis- medical school, you're not looking at the fact that you're going to have to intern and you know work from yeah. 11 p.m. till yep. 8 a.m. Yep. or 9 a.m. on a on a 10 or 11 hour shift overnight, and then sleep one hour and come back for another shift. And you know you yep. got to clean bedpans and you know wipe people's butts and stuff like. Thanks they don't for that tell visual. you that. They tell you you're going to save <laughs> save lives. You know, that's yeah, the yeah. hook is you're going to save lives and be a part yeah. of this. And, and you're going to make millions. Well, you don't make those millions for a long time. And you don't save any lives for a long time either. You know, you're, you're yeah, cleaning well, bedpans. Yeah, well, in this industry, I don't know who's going to make millions in this industry unless you want to go out on the hook for millions to begin with. You, well, you know was, what they say, you know. How do you make a million dollars? You start with two, yeah, right? Yeah, that's our business. So, no, but I was referring more to the medical community, obviously, than uh, right. than ours, because uh, in ours it's a little bit tougher. So yeah. I, I want to. Yeah. I'm a I'm a big quotes guy, and uh, I've always loved a really good quote. Been a sucker for a good quote. And yesterday I popped up a uh, a sort of preview uh, message about you and and Claire Wing that we were going to have you on our podcast today. But I, I had noticed a quote in one of your, um, I don't know, one of the articles I read about you that said the only way to build a team is to be a part of it. And I really loved that one and I grabbed it. Do you have any other good ones? I don't know. Not right off the top of my head. I suppose you're catching me off guard. Putting, putting you um, on the spot here. Yeah, well, you know, the only the only one the other one that I'm really well known for is that I tell people all the time that I don't want to be the barnacle on the hull of progress, you know. So I, <laughs> I, I do my best not one. to be the guy that's holding us back from going forward as well. But I, I think I've always had the perspective that you earn it. I know that I've taught this to my boys since they were little. You know, nothing in life comes free. You earn what you get. And I'm the guy, you know, it, I have a little more trouble doing it now because, like I said, I'm, I'm 67 years old this year. But, you know, even two years ago, probably, I, I would go out to a show and, and pull some feeder cable for a while just so the guys would know that I'm not above doing it. Yeah. You know, I mean, it takes everybody, you know, one person that's standing around watching the rest work means it's going to take one person longer to get the hell out, you know. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think... Uh, I, I, one of my other guys had a quote that we, we jokingly use around here. He used to, you know, we used to say there's no I in team. And then he used to rebut with, well, there's no me in loadout. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one too. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he didn't, you know, he didn't fit into the team very long because loadout's the time when everybody wants to go. That's funny. Well, is there anything we've missed, uh, any charities or anything that's important to you that we should be talking about or anything to promo Clearwing here? Or, uh, Well, you know, I don't know. I think the, you know, I don't have anything specific that I want to champion right at the moment and wave a flag, but I will say that, you know, maybe it's because I had nine kids. I, I think that family and and kids and teaching them and educating them is 
one of the most important dynamics we're responsible to and and paying it forward certainly you know i've been extremely fortunate in the success of this business and i do a lot to show my gratitude not only to the people who drive this business forward and the in the guys doing shows every day but just in the community and and paying it forward you know I, i think that's extremely important in life to just continue goodwill to others that aren't so fortunate. So we put a lot of time and effort into that. You know, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about with the community outreach piece, you know, we run these AVL 101 things where kids from high schools or even middle school can come in and not only just learn the slightest little bit about the input module of a mixing console and how that drives the, the chain of signal and equalization and all of that, to wireless microphone technology and some other things so we can give them a taste of something they might be interested in for the future real early on. That's We've really done a great. thing a couple times. We do a thing here in Milwaukee. It's part of the school system and the Milwaukee Metropolitan Association of Commerce. It's called Be the Spark. And they take seventh, eighth grade kids and put them on a bus and run them around to all different kinds of industries and give them just a little two-hour exposure to what this industry is about. So once a year we do, you know, six stations in the shop, a sound station, a lighting station, a video station, a backline station, even a truck station. And we let the kids go from station to station every 15 minutes and play with an audio console and do a little pro uh, mixing, you know, it's the, the program, the Pro Tools mixing uh, on an audio console and then, you know, move some moving lights around and even climb up in the tractor of a truck and see what it feels like to sit in a semi just to give them some exposure at all the different things that come That's with, really so cool. you know, an industry that most kids are charged up about, you know, so, and, you know, it, we show them a little video of us doing Usher or something at Summerfest before they go in the back and see how we do that. But I think it's important to drive it downwards and just give kids an opportunity to see, you know, I agree with you so much. That is so cool. Well, and if you look at one of the greatest recruiters of all time, the U.S. military, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they they do the same thing. I mean, they take a tank or they take an airplane or they take, you know, some sort of a military vehicle out and they take it out to the weirdest places sometimes where you're thinking, why do they have a jet here? But then you see a lineup of kids looking to go take a look inside that jet. And, you know, I, I know that you know, for a brief moment in my childhood, I went, wow, that'd be really cool. And then, you know, you think, geez, you know, somebody's washing that jet. Somebody's, you know, doing all the other things. That's where I'd end up. You know, I wouldn't be the lucky guy that gets to fly it or whatever. But, well, uh, you know, you see all these kids, you see these, these younger, the next generation, I don't know what to call them, um, at Tourlink or some of the other trade shows where there's panel discussions and there's an audience full and kids will raise their hand. And one of the first things they'll say is, how do I get into this business? You know, I just paid $600, let's say, to come to this convention for the next three days just to ask, how do I get involved in this business? You know, so people are looking for a way in and, and I'm not sure that unless they stumble upon a doorway, they really know how to get there unless you're doing some kind of community outreach to show them. Yeah, well, so, Craig, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one quick little uh, uh, story. So my son's a racing driver. He's 15 years old, and he's mm-hmm. he's basically been a, a pro driver since he was seven. And wow. um, so at one of the races... Yeah, at one of the races he won in Daytona, there was a Q&A session with a professional NASCAR driver uh, named AJ Allmendinger. And 
you know, kids were all asking AJ all these different questions and he was answering. So one older kid, I think he was about 17 years old, a driver, said, AJ, you know, I'm about to go into college soon. What would be good classes to take if I want to continue to pursue um, a career as a driver? And Mm -hmm. so everyone was expecting him to say physics, science, math, you know, things that are very uh, engineering based and and along those lines where you'd understand the car better. And his response was marketing and PR. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, my son is about to go into homeschool. And as part of his homeschooling, I'm going to be bringing on a marketing consultant to teach my son marketing and PR. And Mm -hmm. um, because every driver and I think every front of house audio guy, every lighting guy these days needs to do a really good job of marketing themselves. And to me, what that means is do a great job and then tell people about it. And but it all starts with your network. It it starts with doing a great job first, though, you know, and people will see that. But more people will see it if you're able to market yourself. And uh so, yeah, I mean, this is a whole different generation now of these kids that spend 90% of their time in front of a phone and and on Snapchat and all these different things. And uh, Well, you know, the one, I feel, the one I feel bad about is the kids that are spending so much money nowadays for a college education to not be able to find a job in their field when they get out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so well, we talk about trades whole- more than ever now, too. Talk about yeah. an industry that needs to be reworked is, is education. I mean, we could go on a five-hour podcast about that, I'm yeah. sure, and I don't know what your feelings yeah. are towards it, but to me, they're learning things that are completely useless to their future, and they're not learning things that they should be learning. You know, for, for I, I would agree. kids in seventh yeah. and eighth grade to not be learning coding right now, for, for example, um, yeah. is unbelievable. I mean, you know, there's not going to be as many jobs in the future for uh, you know, the things that we used to need to do in the future, it's going to be a lot different. And so why aren't we teaching people about the future, not about the past? So, well, and, and whenever somebody asks me to come to a local school or something and do a little, you know, dissertation on entrepreneurship or, you know, whatever my, my opening for kids always is, you know, we're all born with a gift. Every one of us is born with a gift. The trick is to figure out what your gift is. And usually you're going to be passionate about that gift if you can recognize what it is. And if you have to, especially for, especially for men, if you have to work the rest of your life to be the breadwinner for a family, the worst thing I can think of is to have to do something for your whole life just to bring home a paycheck oh, without liking what you do. Agree. Well, and yeah. you, you know, know so there's a guy named Gary V. I don't passion, know. If- you'll be happy. I don't know if you've ever heard of yeah. Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. He's a, a big social media mm-hmm. marketing media guy. And uh, mm-hmm. I've followed him since really his beginning when nobody even knew who he was. And um, But one of the things he says is, you know, when people come to him and go, oh, it's just so hard. How can I get a break? How can I? And he just says, look, you know, there's like, I can't remember the numbers, but there's like a 72 billion to one chance that you could have been anything other than a human being on earth today with all these opportunities. Mm -hmm. You could have been a fly, an ant, a tree, you know, a a tomato (laughs) plant. You could have been all kinds of other things, but you're a human. And not only are you a human, but you're in America at the most opportune time to be a human in America you know, shut yeah. up and get to work, <laughs> you know, go yeah, do yeah, something count, productive. Count your blessings and figure it out. You well, bet. Mm-hmm. And just look at our industry. How, how many opportunities are there 
for a 16 or 17 year old kid to enter our industry and make a career out of it that is probably, you know, so much better than a lot of the other choices you could make. And, you know, we're all hungry in this industry. We're hungry for great kids coming out of school to go, hey, pick me. I want to get into that business. So you only have to be motivated and willing to earn it. That's the only thing you really need. Nobody's going to walk up and hand you a stellar career on a silver platter unless you're born with a name, you know. We won't pick one, but you know what I'm saying. You're part Silver of this spoon lucky name. sperm club or something, yeah. right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Which I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. Oh, so. I certainly wasn't. I, I grew up in a little <laughs> town nobody's ever heard of called Delia, Alberta. And the only reason... I, I was born in Hannah, Alberta, which is famous because Nickelback is from there, or infamous. Um, and I was born that's, in Hannah that's, that's, because there was no hospital that's, that's in Delia. Right that's halfway between Paint Lick and Bug Tussle, isn't it? Right yeah, it's right there. Do you just take the first exit before Paint Lick? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, anyways, Greg, we appreciate you coming on very much. Uh, one more question yeah. before I let you go sure. here: What kind of boat you looking at right now in your back uh, out your window? Well, I have two actually. <laughs> I have a, a Harris pontoon boat and a, a Malibu wake setter. Uh, oh, good so, times. And the pontoon boat yeah. is when you want to go out with like three bottles of wine and, you know, a couple friends yeah. and just sit and watch the I mean, the to sunset. be honest with you, to be really honest with you, I, the, the ski boat is really a kid's thing across the board. I, I still go out. I'm a pontoon guy, but yeah. yeah. But, good for you. you know, uh, they, they take their fair share of my time, too, just keeping them running and yeah. putting them in and taking them out. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but you're in, you're, you're entering high season right now. You're going going into the fun period. Summertime. So good for you. I'm jealous. Life is, life is good. Yeah. Well, thank you for the time, guys. I appreciate the opportunity for thank sure. Thank you, Greg. And thank we'll you send so you much, a link Greg. as soon as we have the show up. Yeah, let me know. Good talking with you. Anytime. Come yeah. back. Have a great day. Okay. Thank you. All right, take care. Yep, bye-bye. And thank you again to Ben and everyone at Act Lighting for sponsoring today's episode of Geezers of Gear. Join us again next week with Howard Ungerlight. Sweet, sweet.